You know, perhaps you have said this to another or maybe even had it asked of you at some point, and that is that question that goes like this. What will it take to prove or to convince you of my love for you? Maybe you have said that to another person in sort of a sense of sadness or frustration. You're wanting them to grasp and to realize the depth of your love for them. Or maybe you have had someone ask that very question of you. What is it going to take to prove or to convince you of my love for you? I can't help but to wonder if at times God himself does not struggle with that very, uh, if you would, sense of sadness or frustration in regards to his love for us. I wonder if at times God is not with an aching heart silently whispering to all of us at times saying, what is it going to take to convince you or to prove to you the love that I have for you. Well, this passage, as we read it together this morning, you can see, I hope, is a description of God's love for us seen in his son, Jesus Christ, and what he has accomplished on our behalf. And if you leave here this morning with absolutely nothing else, that after the next three minutes you are bored to tears by listening to my voice, I pray by the grace of God and just the simple reading of his word that you'd at least depart with a better sense or a clearer assurance of God's love for you. God's love for you personally. Not God loves the world, not I've heard that God's loving, but that somehow the Spirit of God would bring home to your heart the reality of a sense of God's personal love for you in your life. The background, remember, of Romans 5, as we began the chapter last week, Paul is now speaking of some of the supplemental, or we could say additional benefits of salvation, or what we call being justified by faith. In other words, that though we are guilty sinners, to be justified by faith means that though I am guilty of sin against God, that God, as the result of my faith alone in Jesus Christ and his finished work, has now declared me to be righteous and to be innocent so I can be forgiven and free of my punishment of sin and have access into heaven. And in that salvation experience, Paul was then speaking of having now been justified by faith, some of the benefits we also have as a result of that in this chapter here. He mentioned how we now have peace with God. We're not at war with God anymore. In a sense, God is no longer having animosity towards us because we are now in right relationship toward God. We have access to God. We can go directly to God, into his presence, speak to him, spend time with him. We don't have to go through an intermediary. We don't have to go through another person to get to God, but that we have direct access to God because we now stand in a favored position. We're a family member. We're a child of God, and we stand in grace that we can look at our problems and challenges, though we face them, not as vain and worthless, but to realize that even our tribulations and hardships, God can use them as tools. And he does in a loving way to help develop character in our lives and perseverance and to give us hope for the future and things that he has ahead. And last thing that he mentioned there in verse 5, which transitions us to our text this morning, is verse 5. Another benefit Paul mentioned of God's salvation is that we as Christians, as the result of our salvation experience have personally experienced firsthand and continuously experienced the love of God within our lives as the result of the Holy Spirit living within us. 
He said there in verse 5, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In other words, the day that I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, the day of my conversion, when I acknowledged my sin and asked Christ to save me personally, and I opened my heart to Jesus as the result of that experience, the Bible teaches that God then lives within. The Spirit of God actually comes within our lives and takes up residence. And no longer is God just, in a sense, with us in our lives, trying to draw us into a relationship with Him, but He literally enters into our lives and becomes a part of our life living within us so that we can have a living relationship with Him. And in the experience of that, there is that overwhelming reality of understanding God's love for you personally. The day that I accepted Jesus, there was an incredible awareness in a way like never before of how much God loved me. And it wasn't just intellectual anymore. It wasn't people telling me, listen, well, God loves you, man. God loves you. And I heard that God loves you. But the day that I accepted Jesus and the spirit of God, it worked in my heart personally. I rea reality came to pass. Wow, I get it now, God. I experience your love. And then God lives by his spirit inside of us. And the idea is he continues to pour out continuously testimony of the reality that God loves us. He's there convincing us and continuing to remind us and prove to us of the incredible love that God has for us, no matter what we're going through in this life. Now, it's very likely with that thought of the love of God in Paul's mind that he now goes on in verse 6 and forward this morning to speak about the love of God in more detail. He's told us the love of God's been poured out into our hearts. The Holy Spirit's testifying continuously that God loves us. And it's probably now with that thought of the love of God in Paul's mind that he wants to go on and talk a little bit more about the love of God and speak of it in detail, which is what leads him into verse 6 saying, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But, he says, contrast, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, verses 6 through 8, very clearly, when you look at the context, obviously they go together because they deal specifically with the love of God. And even more specifically, the love of God being revealed and expressed through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. In these three verses, I think at least three clear observations can be made regarding Jesus' death and God's love. The first thing that we see very evident here is that Jesus' death, number one, was substitutional. Jesus' death was substitutional. In other words, his death... And him dying was in replacement of our death. It was, in a sense, him dying and taking our spot to experience the punishment that we deserve. You notice as we read in verse 6, and then as well in verse 8, two times you have that repeated refrain there, Christ died for us. He says in verse 6, when we were still without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. And then the end of verse 8, again, Christ died for us for us and the idea they're emphasizing for us in a substitutional way he substituted his death in place of the death and punishment that we deserve 
That's the idea here. The language indicates to die in place of, on behalf of, or, or uh, to basically take someone else's place. Now, this is important to, to understand because we have to always remember, and if not remember, at least come to realize at some point in your life that our sin against God, our rebellion against God, which we're all guilty of. There's no difference of anyone in this room. We all fail and make mistakes and thought and word and deed and say and do things throughout our life that we shouldn't do. And our sin against a holy God is not some trivial thing. It's not something that we can just wink at or casually brush aside or blow off as if, well, whatever. I mean, it just happens. No, we need to recognize our sin rightly deserves punishment. It does. The Bible says the soul that sins shall die. Yet the wonderful love story of God's word is what he did for us in his son Jesus. That though we do deserve punishment for our sin, though every one of us is guilty before God, Jesus has lovingly and sacrificially intervened on your behalf. He stepped into my place to take the punishment for me. He lived at first the sinless life in a body of flesh as a man, Holy God coming to this earth so he could create a perfect mediation between God and man. God comes to the earth, takes on a body of flesh to live as a man, being fully God and fully man. And he lives the sinless, perfect life that I don't live, you don't live, and none of us could ever live. And if that were not enough, Jesus lives sinlessly and is the guiltless one. He then does what? Substitutes himself in our place. And he becomes the one to experience the punishment of our guilt and he steps in replacing us as the guilty victim to suffer brutally and to die sacrificially and substitutionally upon the cross for our sins and embraces that sentence of punishment that we deserve as the ones who actually broke the rules of God ourselves. Again, if we can illustrate in our mind as Christ died upon the cross the, in today's vernacular, that would be like someone taking your place in the electric chair. You know, you're guilty. You deserve the sentence of death and you're going to die in the electric chair. And somebody being able to and willing to say, I'll actually sit there and I'll take the electric chair instead of them. You know, when my kids were younger in a season of life when they were still receiving uh, spankings, the rod of correction for their bad and rebellious behavior on occasion. I remember on one occasion, at least specifically, one of my older daughters, when her younger sister was about to uh, receive a, a, a discipline, a spanking, her coming to me and, you know, that just sweet little voice saying, Daddy, I'll take her spanking for her. I think I can take it better, Dad. And, and, you know, it's like, oh, my goodness gracious. You know, just, I don't want to spank either one. But that's the idea there. Daddy, I'll take her spanking for her in a much, much, did I say that yet? Much greater degree. Jesus took your spanking. Jesus took the hit for me. Jesus took the electric chair for me. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve stepping in to take our consequence and our punishment for our sin as the innocent one stepping into our place so that we could go free. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6, and listen to the wording carefully, please, as it illustrates that. Regarding Jesus, it says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, the substitutional suffering and death of Jesus. John 10, Jesus said in his own words, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. The idea there is like a, a gracious, loving shepherd who was willing to, to die and, and to risk and, in a sense, lose their own life so that their sheep could get away and escape and be free maybe from the devouring lion or a bear or something that might be trying to harm the flock. And I tell you, when you take time to really ponder that reality of Jesus dying for you as a substitute in a substitutional way, taking your place, when you ponder that reality, it speaks volumes, number one, to what God the Father would do in the depths of his love for you to allow his son, innocent, to suffer that on your behalf and on my behalf. And secondarily, when you ponder it, it speaks volume to the extent and the cost that Jesus would go to to give you opportunity to be free of your sin, to have access into heaven, and to not experience tremendous punishment that we all deserve for our sins on occasion. Secondly, we notice from these verses also, not only Jesus died in a substitutional way, but Jesus' death for us was sacrificial, but very unusual sacrificial but very unusual look what he says in verse 7 there he says scarcely paul says for a righteous man would someone die and perhaps maybe he says for a good man somebody might even dare to die the point paul's making in verse 7 there is to die in the place of another person that's probably we would say in our estimation one of the highest forms of love and heroism and sacrifice that a person yet we all know among humanity to make that kind of sacrifice that's pretty rare paul's saying it's pretty scarce when somebody would actually do something that sacrificial even for a good person when it periodically happens the picture there may be something like you know maybe a, a, a soldier sacrificing his life to salvage someone else in battle or, or maybe some bodyguard taking the bullet to preserve the life of another person. And still, Paul says in verse 7 here, that's, even that's very rare. It's rare, he says, when somebody's willing to die, even, he says, for a, a good person or for a righteous person. The point he's trying to make is, let's say it's for somebody that's esteemed as very valuable, or some quality, a respected individual, somebody that's really well-loved. It's even very rare when somebody will take that step for a well-loved, important person, or, or maybe someone willing to sacrifice their life to spare the life of like an innocent young child or intervening for that important person. Even that sacrificial loving heroism is very scarce. It's very rare. Now contrast that kind of sacrificial loving death. Contrast that now with our condition, the Bible saying, when Jesus Christ died for us sacrificially. Let that paint the contrast. Notice, consider what the Bible says here in verses 6 through 8 of what our condition was, honestly, when Jesus died for us. He uses a few terms here. He says in verse 6, first of all, when that Christ died for us, that we were without strength. The language there indicates to be paralyzed or lame or someone who's utterly powerless, no capability. And it's speaking in a spiritual sense. But picture someone who's a quadriplegic. Picture someone who is completely in a 
form of paralysis. They can do nothing to help themselves, nothing to change their condition. And the Bible's saying this is what we were spiritually. We were without strength. We were in an utterly powerless condition. We couldn't save ourselves or help our spiritual condition. We couldn't you know, clean our act up and make ourselves a little better or try and change our ways, maybe get a little moral. The Bible says, no, we were powerless to resolve the problem of sin dominating and controlling our life as it does in all of our lives. We were powerless to deal with the issue of sin's punishment that we all deserved. We couldn't get ourselves out from under the consequences. We were a prisoner of spiritual war, the Bible says. We were, the Bible teaches we're enslaved to sin and to Satan. And we're in this place where we deserve the judgment of God and we don't have the ability to help ourselves. The point is we are stuck in a paralyzed state of separation. We can't even make ourselves become right with God. Some people falsely think, that, well, I'm going to get right with God. Look, the Bible says we're incapable of getting right with God. We have to, that's why we have to be saved. You can't save yourself. You can't change yourself. You can't turn over a new leaf without facing the reality that it's more gross on the other side than the side you turned over. No, but and the Bible says when Jesus died for us, we didn't have it together. He's saying, no, we, we, were, we were in a helpless condition, unable to help ourselves. He also uses the term, if that weren't bad enough, in verse 6, he says, we also, when Christ died, notice, we weren't righteous and good people. He says, we were ungodly. We were ungodly. The idea there speaks of being without relationship with God. It's when we were living apart from God. We were the total opposite of everything that God is. We were ungodly. We were living a life of independence, of God's authority. We weren't submitting to God's word or to God's ways. We were just doing our own thing. We were just doing our own thing and worshiping self and our own standards and our own desires and denying and disobeying God. We were living apart from him in every way, unholy in thought, word, and deed. And we represented a life that was in everything that was in contradiction to God. That was our condition when Christ died for us, the Bible's saying. He also mentions in verse 8 there another term. Again, notice he says that when Christ died for us, verse 8, we were still sinners. So we were powerless. We were ungodly. We were sinners. The idea is we kept missing the mark of doing what's right. Even when we tried, we still fell short and made mistakes. We were never measuring up and our failures were in relation to pleasing God. We weren't measuring up. We couldn't measure up. Even we tried to clean ourselves up. And that always leads, of course, to a lifestyle that's marked with evil practices that dishonors God and displeases God because it's contrary to his will and ways. In fact, remember we read in verse 10 there, just that very next verse, that ultimately it led to a place of us actually becoming an enemy of God. Now, that's a pretty strong word. You know, we talked about last week how a lot of people don't even realize their true condition before God. When the Bible says, no, listen, we were without strength, ungodly sinners. We were actually an enemy of God. That was our true condition. I mean, that's a strong term, but that is where we brought ourselves to because of where we were at in our condition. We were powerless and polluted, yet nonetheless, again, here's the emphasis. It's in that condition, that condition that Jesus died for you. It's in that condition that Jesus demonstrated God's love for me. Paul purposely builds, verse 7, this logical thought of the rarity of dying in place of a good person, 
of a righteous person, a very important person, of making a sacrifice for that kind of person. And he does that to establish the strong contrast to say, look, when Jesus died for you, you were a not very good person. We were helpless. We were powerless and sinful and rebellious and wicked. And the reasoning is very simply this. Perhaps this morning we could envision if we were afforded the the heroic opportunity with great love and sacrifice, perhaps we could envision dying for a really good person or a really important person. But can I ask you honestly, could you see yourself and would you sacrifice to die for a terrorist? Would you die in place of a rapist? Would you die in place of a mass murderer or a pedophile? Would you die in place of a drug lord or, or someone who's a child abuser? Or a step further, would you allow your child as a parent whom you love greatly to die instead of one of those kind of people so that they could live and have a second chance at life? But yet the Bible is saying to us, this is the picture here. Radical love unusual love, sacrifice that is just unusual. It supersedes natural reason. This is the unusual love of God and love of Christ seen in what he did for us. Ephesians 3, that's why Paul prayed this, that being rooted and grounded in love, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Again, the Bible says, that, that, that we would come to understand the extent, the extensiveness of the love of God. That nobody can go too low that God doesn't still love them in that condition. And nobody can go too far where God still won't love them all the way there in that unhealthy, ungodly condition. That there's nothing that can be done because God's love is so surpassing. It says even when we try and get to know it, it actually surpasses knowledge. So even if we try to fully grasp it, God would say, that's all. You think I only love you that much? It's going to take all of eternity to continue to understand the depths of this love. Now, understanding those truths also reveals something about the love of God for you and me, and that's this. When did God start loving you? When you were at your best? When you were at your worst? God loved us when we were at our worst. It was not when you got your life all straightened out that God started loving you. It was not when you got your act together as you should. The answer is God already loved you when you were at your absolute worst. At your absolute worst. It's not when we become lovable. Listen, we, we need to grasp the reality of the love of God. It's not like the little Max we had here this morning. Look, look at that and go, how could you not love that? Oh, just so lovable, he's so cute. How could you not love him? Listen, it's not like God looked down upon humanity who's spitting in his face and defying him and ignoring him and dishonoring him and sinning against him in every way. And God, well, they're so lovable. How could I not love them? Are you kidding me? It's, you want to know why God loves us? Because God is loving. Because God is loving. And because he is so loving... It does not matter where we're at. He continues to love. And Jesus is the personal extension of God's love to us to demonstrate it to us. And that means this this morning. God's love is not prompted or motivated by your personal condition this morning or by your performance as if somehow you make God love you more or you can get God to love you or win God's love. Listen, God already loves you. 
He's loved you from time and eternity. And that's incredible to know because this morning, despite your current condition, I don't care what you're doing. And maybe what you're doing does please God. But I don't care what you're doing. God still loves you. He loves you tremendously. And you can't make him stop loving you. You can run away from him and ignore him and shut him out of your life, but you won't stop him from loving you. He loves you tremendously. And this morning, that also means despite your recent failures, maybe you've blown it recently, and maybe you're limping along with the guilt and frustration and consequences of having done this or made that mistake. And listen, God loves you just as much before you blew it like that. And his love for you hasn't changed, even though you've blown it like that. Because his love's not motivated by your performance and condition. He loved everyone and everything when we were at our worst. And he's a God who doesn't change. And his love doesn't change. And that's incredible to know that God's love is stable. It's unusual and constant and it's unchanging. It's an unusual love. That's why it's hard for people to accept it. Because we don't offer that kind of love to one another. It's unusual. It's beyond humanity. It's supernatural. And that's why verse 8, he says that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the third thing we can observe from these verses regarding Jesus' death and God's love is that the main way that Jesus died, it was intentional. There was something intentional about the way that Jesus did die. It was intentional to reveal something. That's the thing you have to... It was an intentional death in a certain way to reveal something. What was it to reveal? Well, you take verses 7 and 8 together. It was to reveal or to demonstrate, notice most clearly, God's love towards us. That idea that somebody might scarcely die for a good or a righteous person, but God demonstrates his love in this when we were unholy, powerless, sinful enemies of God. This unusual love of Christ was intended that Jesus would die for the human race when they were at their worst to be an awesome display of how incredible God's love is. It was intentional. It was by design that God worked in that way because that very act of God sending his son and Jesus dying in that way he says, verse 8 there, demonstrates his own love in that. It demonstrates, important word there. The word demonstrate means to prove something, to show something, or <clears throat> to establish or exhibit something. When you look at that word a little deeper in the original language that Paul uses there, demonstrate, it literally is a term that means to show something, hear me, in its best light. Not just to show it, but to show it in its best light and to display it, here's the key, in the best possible way. And now, if I can illustrate, think with me here. Uh, when I was in love with my wife and finally mustered up what money I could to buy the engagement ring, to go to the store, so you go to the diamond shops. And again, when you walk into the diamond shops, how do they display the diamonds? Well, you know, they don't take the diamond out and, and, and put it on a piece of sandpaper or you know, what do they do? They put it, that, well, that black, remember the black velvet that you buy diamonds more frequently, maybe you understand, but it was one time shot for me. Uh, you, you, you put it, that black felt and, and you put the right lighting on it, right? Why? So you're displaying it so that all the facets of the sparkle come out because of the way that you display it. So in its best light, you go, wow. You see all the best aspects of it. This is the idea here. God 
demonstrated, God displayed and exhibited his love in the best way possible. How? By Christ dying for us. In essence, the Bible is saying there is no greater presentation of God's love than Jesus dying in your place. There is no better, more clear exhibit of the reality that God loves you. You, not just the world, he loves you. There is no clear exhibit, nothing ever that's been displayed in a better light and no better way to see the fact that God loves you than to see Jesus dying for you in that condition as a demonstration. You know, whenever the Bible, I encourage you to study it, whenever the Bible seeks to prove or to demonstrate to help us understand God's love for us, whenever the Bible is trying to do that, it always points to one thing. It always points to Jesus dying on the cross as our substitute for our sins, making that sacrifice. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says this, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 3.16 says the same thing. By this we know love, because he, that's Jesus, laid down his life for us. Paul says here in Romans 5, God demonstrates his love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is how God established and exhibited his love, and it's what proves and shows the love of God for each person in its best light, and there is most, no, no more efficient way that, or clear way that we could see and understand God's love. Now, by way of application, this morning, that means this. First of all, it's not right for me to demand that God prove his love to me. And I've said that before. I've had that attitude before. I've talked to others before where it's somehow, well, well, you know, God, you need to prove your love to me. You need, to pr- you need to do something. I mean, show me something. Give me something. And, and God is saying, prove my love to you? I can't. There is no clearer way that I could exhibit my love in the way that I have already demonstrated it. There is no clearer way. That is the clearest way possible to see the reality of the love of God. And the problem with us is this, is that we often want to try, hear me, to measure God's love in our logical estimation by all kinds of other things. So we have these concepts in our mind, maybe because of our you know, upbringing with parents or experiences in the world or just our human reasoning. Where, well, God, if you really love me, you'll give me this job. And then six weeks later, you're going, God, if you really love me, you'll get me out of this job, Right? <laughs> God, if you really love me, you'll, you'll, you'll give me this girl or give me that guy. And then you know, I don't have to say the other side of that. God, if you really love me, why did you give me this guy? Why did you give me this person? God, if you love me, you'll do this. And, and we want to measure God's love by circumstantial things. Or, or God, if you really love me, then, then take away the, you know, the sickness or the cancer. And again, we try and measure God's love by all these other things. But listen, they're not accurate measures of God's love. We're going to go through trials and challenges and difficulties. Whether you're following God or ignoring God, you're still going to go through difficulties in a sinful, fallen world. We can't measure God's love off of experiences and circumstances or situations. God's love is most clearly seen when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Because there are times when I go through hardships that I'm thinking, Lord, I, 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 and, and I have to look back at Calvary and go, Lord, I don't understand anything that's going on in my life right now. And Lord, everything that I thought should be this way and line up this way, Lord, why is it not line? And, and, and I have to bring myself back to the reality, but Lord, but when I see that you love me that way, Lord, I'm, I can rest in that. Because I know that you love me. No matter what my mind is telling me or my eyes are showing me, Lord, I know that you love me. I know that you love me because I can see it demonstrated in the clearest way. And it also shows that God wants us to become aware of his love. He demonstrated it. He exhibited it, which means this. This morning, one of God's plans for your life is to get you to continue to understand his love on a greater level. What's God's will for my life? I'll tell you one thing God's will for your life is, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not even having any interest in following Jesus Christ yet, God wants to convince you of how much he loves you. He's demonstrated it and he wants to continue to reveal it in a deeper and a greater way to get you to come to the place where you really accept his love and say, wow, Lord, I see it now. And I accept it because I'll tell you, love's powerful, man. Love messes people up. Watch young guys and young gals when they fall in love. They get all messed up. All messed up. Love has that effect. So God wants to reveal his love to have that effect and change in our lives. Paul goes on, verse 9, saying, Much more then, having now been justified by his blood or made right with God through the shed blood of Christ, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So in other words, since the blood of Jesus... The sacrifice of his life and death for us is sufficient payment to bring us into right relationship with God, to make us righteous and forgiven. And since we've trusted in that, the Bible says, if we have done that as a Christian, and we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, he says here, as the result of that, verse 9, we can be assured, notice, that we shall now, as a result, be saved from wrath through Jesus. Because Jesus' blood was shed as the perfect payment and he absorbed the punishment as our substitute, we can be delivered from the wrath to come. Listen, the Bible very clearly teaches there is coming a time when God, who is a righteous judge and a good judge, will indeed judicially exercise his wrath against all sin and ungodliness and rebellion. And as a good and a righteous judge, he must punish sin. Listen, if you were in a courtroom serving as a juror and somebody was clearly you know, guilty of, of rape or mass murder or something, a judge just said, yeah, I know, but you were probably going through a bad season in life. So just, we're just going to drop all the charges. Just forget it. He would say, that's not a good judge. It's an evil judge. No, a good judge has to exercise consequences. And God's a good judge. He's a righteous God. So there is coming a time, the Bible says, where he must punish sin. However, since God lovingly allowed Jesus to already come to this earth and to absorb the punishment against sin and the wrath of God against sin in a substitutional way so we could be offered opportunity to be forgiven, so we could have the opportunity to be uh, escaping the consequences for those who believe upon Jesus Christ and his finished work and what he did upon the cross. And those who embrace it personally for their own need, the Bible's saying that allows us to have the coming wrath pass over us. We have the opportunity to escape and be delivered from the wrath of God to come through Jesus Christ. The believer in Christ is exempt from coming wrath. He says, having been justified by his blood, will now be saved from wrath 
through Jesus. In other words, we're excused from the coming wrath. We're released from the punishment we deserve and therefore there's no fear or worry or anxiety that somehow we're going to experience the wrath of God if we've trusted in the work of Jesus Christ who once bore the wrath of God for the sin of humanity upon himself. Jesus sufficiently absorbed it and therefore if you trust in him you can be released from all forms of wrath that are to come. Specifically being, first of all, I believe, and you're free to disagree, that the Bible strongly teaches that Christians shall escape the wrath that's coming during the time of the tribulation period upon this earth. The seven-year period that's to come where great cataclysmic judgment will come upon this earth. And the wrath of God will be poured out. I believe the Bible teaches clearly that we'll be delivered from that. 1 Thessalonians 1 says, We wait for God's Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We believe in a pre-tribulation rapture that Jesus, the idea, will draw out Christians from this earth before the very wrath of God begins to be poured out upon this earth in that hour. And secondarily, that means individually for every believer, we will also escape the wrath of God that can be experienced after a person dies who's rejected Jesus Christ, where those who reject Christ, the wrath of God will be experienced as they are cast into what the Bible calls the lake of fire, what we often refer to as hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth and eternal darkness and suffering and torment forever and ever and ever, and that can be escaped. Jesus said in John 5, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, and he shall not come in to judgment. How awesome to know that we can have that blessed assurance to be able to be saved from the wrath of God through Jesus Christ. The lesson the Bible is trying to say to us is this. Jesus is the escape door. The flood's coming. The waters are rising. It's unavoidable. Jesus is the escape door from avoiding the coming judgment of God. And though guilty, we can escape what we deserve anyway and you can be spared from it if you come to Jesus and if you've come to Jesus and humbly accepted his work on your behalf. Now that being said, I must say this, if you refuse Jesus Christ, the most loving thing I can tell you, if you do not embrace Jesus as Savior, recognizing you're a sinner, then you choose to experience the wrath of God. You choose to embrace the wrath of God against the guilt for your own sin because you've rejected the escape opportunity that God's made through his son, Jesus Christ. I think Jesus gives the greatest counsel on that by simply saying this, and we all know it well, John three sixteen and 17. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so whoever believes on him won't perish but have everlasting life. Jesus wanted to say, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world can be saved through him. There is that escape available and Jesus is that escape door. He says, verse 10 and 11, For if when we were enemies, then we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been now reconciled, notice we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So Paul here now is describing the salvation experience as being reconciled to God. 
You notice in verse 10 and 11, three times we see the term reconciled or reconciliation. If you look up the word reconcile, it's described as to restore relationship that has been broken or to restore relationship that has somehow been separated. It's to settle or resolve animosity between two parties so that peace or reunion can come into play between those two estranged parties. The original word in the Greek speaks of exchanging old conditions for new conditions. The old condition of a relationship for the new condition of a relationship. And hear me, this is necessary for every breathing soul on this planet. That at some point, we would be reconciled to God. The Bible very clearly teaches that we do not begin life in relationship with God. The Bible teaches we begin life sinful, spiritually dead, separated from God as a result of what Adam has done and we have inherited. And as a result of that, there must come some point in my life where I am reconciled back to God in relationship. You don't automatically begin life in relationship with God. We must be reconciled to God. And even though we were literally enemies of God, God lovingly initiated what? The opportunity for reconciliation. He pursued you. He came after me. He created a way through his son Jesus Christ there would be a path of reconciliation where now we can, it says, receive his reconciliation that he's offering to us through Jesus as the mediator. Jesus is the one who's the mediator who can bring about reconciliation with God because he's God and man. He's in touch with divinity and he's in touch with humanity. And therefore, as a mediator, he can bridge the gap that is there. He can take away the animosity of our sin problem. And that's why Paul is saying to us here, having now, notice, been reconciled to God, having been reconciled, in other words, that was what happened at your conversion. And he's using that logic of having been reconciled to prove exactly how far God has actually brought us along, further than we often think. Further than even just being reconciled, but into good standing. That's what he's saying in verse 10. If when we were enemies, he says, we were reconciled to God through his death, much more, he says, verse 10, having been reconciled, we shall now be saved by his life. The, the idea here Paul is trying to convey is if God loved you and Jesus graciously died for you, when you were at your absolute worst, when you were rebellious and wicked and sinful and ignoring God, He's saying, and if in that condition God initiated terms of reconciliation, now as a believer who's repented of your sin, who's forgiven, who's right with God and trying to love and serve God, he's saying, what would God's attitude be towards you now if he loved you that much then? He's saying, do you realize how in good standing you are with God now that you are in right relationship with him? What's his attitude towards you now? He's saying it's much more favorable and we should trust that and rely upon that, that God's favor is towards us. And he's saying if in his death he accomplished such incredible things as restoration and reconciliation, if he did that in his death, he's saying how much more will his risen victorious life bring for us now if he accomplished that in his death? He's pointing out to this reality of how Jesus' death provided escape from sin's penalty, but his life now is what helps me continuously with sin's power and helps me to continue to live for God and serve God. His present life is what keeps me in good standing with God 
relationally. Hebrews 7, therefore, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, God says, look, in the same way, there was only one way to come to me initially to be reconciled. And that was through the death of my son. God says, really, it's not complicated. It's very simple. There's just one way to stay in right relationship with me. And that's just to stay in relationship with my son. To continue to live with my son and to experience his life, to talk with Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to live for Jesus, to love him and to, to, to fellowship with him. He says, listen, it's the life of my son Jesus that will continue to help you to live your life and your relationship with me and to continue to stay in right relationship with me. And so much so, that's why Paul says in verse 11, not only that, we should rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've received that reconciliation. It's almost the, the summary of the prior 11 verses where, where the Bible is saying to us, listen, when we really realize what's happened, it should cause such appreciation in our hearts. It should cause such a celebration of what we've now received. I'm right with God, man. And I'm in relationship with God. I'm not a religious person. I'm in relationship with God. And Jesus is alive. I'm not following some dead person who wrote some religious writings in a book. I'm following a living Savior. I have a living relationship with a Lord who helps me and loves me and strengthens me and guides me. And Jesus offers us adequate reason to celebrate and worship God despite whatever's going on in our lives. We always have a reason to rejoice because we can rejoice in God. We always have that blessed privilege and it's the natural outflow of what he's done for us. Hey, this morning I would ask you this. Are you living in right relationship with God today? Are you living in right relationship with God? As you consider the opportunity that you can live in right relationship with God, considering all he's done, I have to ask, why would you not want to be right with God? And why would you not want to enter into a relationship with God? Considering all he's done, it seems that it would be logical for us to run to the Lord and to say, Lord, in response to what you've done, I want to walk in right relationship with you. Amen?